Hello guys and welcome back to the OPD podcast and what is going to be the very first roundtable discussion we've ever had. So for those of you that don't know, I essentially, uh, me and Austin put this idea together. I put a question box out on Instagram. We opened the place up for four spaces and got you guys to vote who you would most like to see on the podcast. And then in a separate slide, we did the same thing, but with one topic that you'd most like us to discuss. Very luckily, we managed to get each of the top four voted, which is amazing, made my life much easier because it legitimately took a long time to count through all of those votes. Um, I'm not going to say who got the most votes, but I will say this. Scott, you actually got more than everyone else put together. Oh, <laughs> I, think, I think you contradicted yourself. You, 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 I thought that, that was amazing. Part B of your... Your answer there, yeah. Um, okay, so we have Callum Raystrick, Christian Chapman, Scott Stevenson, Victor Black, and of course we also have Austin Stout as always. What's different here is me and Austin are simply just going to mediate the discussion here. We're not going to get involved and we're going to let the guys that you guys voted in take the floor. And the topic for discussion is nutrient timing. That came up on top, but interestingly what came in second was carbohydrate timing. So I think we can quite easily mash those two together. I think they'll work quite well anyway. Um, first things first, we'll go through the round table. Um, we'll let each person intro themselves, give a basic intro of what they do, etc., And then we'll dig straight into this discussion. So Cal, if we could start with you. I'm Cal. Um, most of you know me as the guy with the melon-shaped head. Um, based in the UK, part of, well, one of five of the Muscle Mentors. We run a coaching company over here that uh, both coaches clients and athletes and educators, ed educates coaches as well. Uh, and primarily, I, I kind of work with body composition-based clients, both competitors and non-competitors as well. So this will be a, a really cool discussion to get stuck into for sure. Thanks, Cal. Christian? Hello, I am Christian Chapman, um, coached by Christian on Instagram. I have no idea why I'm here. Um, so, thanks for voting, though. I really appreciate it. Um, so, a bit of background, online physique coach. Um, kind of specialising in day-to-day -day clients, non-really competitive. However, it doesn't mean I don't coach competitive clients, but it is predominantly uh, lifestyle. Lifestyle clients. That's, that's me. Beautiful. Scott? Well, I think probably most folks know who I am, actually, given what you mentioned about the voting. But um, pertains, as it pertains to the topic, I think I, I started doing peri-workouts or intra-workout nutrition probably about 20 years ago now. So I've been messing around with this topic personally and with clients for a couple of decades. So um, I'm just a guy who, who was a, a meathead who found his way and to, uh, to making some money doing, uh, doing what he loves. So, and digging into the science as well as living in the trenches has sort of been the combo that I've, I've used to, to enjoy the path. Beautiful. And last but not least, Victor. Uh, I'm, uh, my name's Victor Black. I'm a 53 year old, uh, amateur competitive bodybuilder and, uh, Unlike uh, Scott, I'm, I'm probably the least well-known person on the panel. And if I was to you know, try to describe what my uh, niche is, it's probably trying to help guys understand the, the safer application of performance enhancement, you know, finding, that, finding that, uh, that middle ground somewhere between 
TRT, HRT, and, uh, you know, like higher risk usage. So that's really kind of my niche. And I don't want to leave you out, Austin. How you doing, man? He's got himself on mute. He's probably not even listening. I was. I was listening. <laughs> <but>. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't need to introduce myself, but I think it would be funny to point out that I did get votes. Even though I'm a yes. fucking co-host, I still got votes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> were there were there votes to remove you from the show, Austin? Dude, I don't know. Joe Joe told me Joe sends me a message just laughing hysterically and says that I got votes. I'm like, why did people vote for me? Yeah, the question was like, avid listeners on the podcast, and you know, people voted for you, Austin. So that's a good sign, I suppose, that people still want to see you. Yeah, I suppose. <laughs> that's okay. hilarious um but i guess if there's any there's any new listeners that don't know me um i am my company's integrated muscle and health i'm pretty active on social media facebook instagram uh, i do a lot more youtube stuff now um i coach everyone i mean i have competitors non-competitors lots of um very very hard health type cases that I work with now uh, do a lot of consults, different things in that arena. So I do a lot of everything. Cool. Okay. So what we're going to do is run through a list of the questions that you guys sent in through Instagram and allow the panel to discuss and debate, etc. Um, their opinions or their approaches on, on the questions that you guys have put forward. So we'll kick it off with the very first question in it. And it's, you know, pretty much a baseline question as it pertains just to energy balance and not to specific macronutrient timing. And the question was simply, should you eat more calories on a training day as compared to a rest day? So Christian, if you want to kick this off for us, open the field. Right, please, please repeat that. Should you eat more calories on a training day? Is it beneficial to eat more calories on a training day uh, than a non-training day? Okay. So personally, remember as well, whatever I answer is my thoughts and my opinions doesn't mean it's 100% correct. It's anecdotal, what I've done, what I've done with people, etc., etc. There is no right or wrong way, I will say. Um, however, what I would say is I want to fuel performance. And on that day when I'm training, I'm going to eat more calories than I am on a rest day. Um, one, it gives my appetite a break on um, on a rest day as well. I want to feel hungry. Um, I think as well, Joe, what we noticed when we were dieting was I had a vast, um, what's the word, difference in uh, calories on a training day and a non-training day. I like food, okay? So if I have to diet hard one day, and the next day I get to eat a lot more because I'm training, I'm going to do that. It's going to help with a diet adherent, adherence as well to push through those shit days where your food's low because you've only got to wait, you know, one day essentially until you're eating a bolus of, of calories. Um, and it is going to aid performance. It is going to aid recovery. You could say having a higher intake on a, on a rest day is still going to, Increase recovery. However, if you're dieting, you've got to get those calories down somehow. 
And I'd rather do that on a rest day than have, you know, a, a more similar intake over both days. Um, now that we're in a, a growing kind of phase, I feel that it's not as important in my opinion. Um, but I would always still preferentially put more calories on training day. Um, just through anecdotal wise, having the energy to train and, and, and fuel performance. Um, even if it is, um, what's the word? Joe, help me out here. Even if it, even if it was placebo, mm. placebo still, still works in my opinion. I feel like I've just driveled on there a little That's bit. Right. So everybody else here on the panel, don't wait for me to say your name. If you've got something to, to interject or something that you agree or disagree with, please do just jump in. I would say it's person dependent as well. Not everyone's going to want to do how I did it. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? No. If people can adhere to go on, go on, stop. I think those are all great points. I mean, adherence is numero uno, really, when it comes down to it, especially as you're dieting down. If you're, regardless of the diet, and the, just the general science suggests that that's the case. Um, one, one thing, of course, is that if you if your workouts are, um, if you're someone who tends to do higher amount of volume, um, and you know your otherwise your your other your components of caloric expenditure are the same, then in order if you're if you're trying to let's say gain during the off season, um, you're going to have a greater expenditure on those training days. So that's going to basically require for you to create an excess. Simply, if you don't believe there's anything regarding timing that's important or any other factors that you sort of covered there, Christian, you're going to want more calories in the day you expend more, send more energy just to create that, create that excess, not to mention all the timing benefits. And I think I'll throw this out because it's something I think that I talked about on, on your podcast, Cal, is that if you've got someone in an off season situation and this didn't, this question was very generic off season versus pre-contest, I think. But if you've got someone who's figured out um, and they know from their experience or just take a hypothetical situation where you've got a certain caloric excess on a daily basis, uh, that's, that's going to optimize the caloric excess needed to put on muscle mass, which can only proceed at a certain rate, then that maybe is you know, 300 calories or what have you. So you're going to put on some body fat and you're going to put on some muscle mass. And you think across the week as to when those, when you should have any, if any, fluctuation in calories. You've got that, that baseline excess, which, which doesn't create excess fat gain because you can only gain muscle at a certain rate. But you've got those days when you're increasing the, uh, the muscle breakdown, of course, protein synthesis on the days that you train it makes perfect sense in that case to distribute those calories onto those days. And let's say that if you, if you just, if you kept the calories higher on non-training days, that might then sort of break the first rule of thumb that you've got, that you can only eat so much in excess without gaining fat uh, unnecessarily. So take a caloric excess that's optimized in general, and then think about what needs to happen on a day-to-day basis because of what you're doing to the muscle pretty much that, that right, that piece of logic right there dictates there should be probably some difference aside from any fueling the extra fueling the workout, the particulars of hormonal changes and all the other things I'm sure we'll dig into. 
that just suggests that it makes sense to put a little more food and calories in on the training days than on non-training days. Yeah. Cal, can I, uh, can, can I uh, offer the, the devil's advocate point of view? Yes, there, maybe? please. Yay. Do it. So, so I guess I would start this consideration with, I think it's very difficult to answer questions out of context. And so the first question mm. you have to ask is who, who are we actually addressing here? So, for example, as an extreme example, if you're talking about a female that's, you know, and has very limited calories, it makes it very, very difficult to start, you know, shifting calories around on a woman. You know, um, another example would be, you know, most of the people I work with quite bluntly uh, really need to focus on the flawless execution of the fundamental basics. And I'm not going to suggest for a moment that there's, there comes a point in one's career that, you know, the only thing that's left is, you know, turning over the small rocks, I like to, you know, call them looking for, you know, often sub fractional returns. And I see this conversation as very much that it's like, so mm. if, if you were to look at the millions of people that use the gym, you know, you go into the gym and say, you know, really, you're, you know, that that type of you know approach that Scott's talking about is very valid and, and, and holds tremendous value for a very small percentage of elite trainers. But for most people, most of the time, you know, it's, it's hard enough to get them to execute the fundamentals correctly. And so some model that is just more moving parts and more complexity seeking, you know, what, what might be true under certain circumstances almost sets them up to say, well, you know, we're, we're, we're putting too many balls in the air for the average person to you know, flawlessly execute that. And I prefer to take the approach that says, when you're starting out, most people, most of the time should probably follow a very structured model where every day is basically groundhog day until you get to the point whereby you've really you know, realized every possible return from that and then for those individuals that want to keep going and are prepared to put more, more moving parts in play and, and make a greater investment of time then logically that would be a discussion but you're talking about a few percentage of the people who train you know, there's one thing I think that explains, of course, why so many of the nutrient or protein timing studies show, show no difference, at least in newbies, is that right. like, this is a small rock. This is a, a minor piece. But on the other hand, to play the angel to the devil's advocate, I guess, um, is that you can't actually set up a really basic diet and then just have one thing that differs on the day of training, that sure. being an extra 100 grams of, of, of carbs and 50 grams of protein or something like that. Everything else, meal one through six are identical, except maybe even just an intra-workout. And that's one. Would you agree, Scott, then, if, if, you, took, if you use that, that example, you great, great example you gave, would you agree then that the smaller the magnitude of difference between option A and option B that you present, the likelihood is that the logic would be that the smaller the return. Yes, I, I well, it that was the when you when you put it in terms of magnitude, you have to think of that in terms of what the person the person exactly the context and small might be the difference between first and sixth place at a show where a person's trying to get a pro card, for instance, because there's a very small difference for those for those folks, and 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 one one thing too that we can also throw out is that yeah, you're right. If you just if you just have a small change like that, it, it may not make much of a difference um, for some people, but it may for others. And there's other nuances to this whole nutrient timing idea that is sort of creeping into this this question because it didn't specifically 
uh, point to that. But when you, what I have not seen tested and what uh, in, in the scientific literature, what I have um, seen, I think Christian was doing this. I think Joe might be doing something like, something like this. I've done this with clients for years and personally is when you start stretching out the difference between training and non-training days, um, then you can tend to see a scenario where the non-training days are, are just enough to keep you um, from backsliding and not recovering reasonably well. Whereas those, those, the extra calories that support what you've done on those training days tends to have, tends to be very, very important. And you know that because if you were to remove that and go back to a more evenly distributed caloric intake, it becomes incredibly noticeable for someone who's been doing something like that for a while. Even the people that I know who are pretty advanced who've been using, I've seen this uh, so many times. It's kind of funny. It happens when I'm at an event with someone who uh, has started using an intra-workout and they're, they're, this is an out-of-town type of thing and they didn't bring anything with them and they just can tell, like, they feel empty. There's even, and this is, some of this may just be placebo effect, which is, I'll take it every single time. It's the most powerful drug we really know. It's universally effective in so many different circumstances. Um, that when you remove that, it, they do notice the difference. So it's sort of like an elimination type of scenario that can make a difference. But, but the thing too, really, which I still agree with you in, in absolutely in premise, Victor, that it's, it is icing on the cake and but sometimes the icing can make all the difference you know if you're if you're someone who's really trying to uh, eke out everything you possibly can and the thing that i'll toss in here at as well and this is something john meadows says a good bit and i i believe too is that um, it depends on how hard you're training if you're someone who really hasn't been pushing the limits of what they can what they're capable of in the gym then you know having this support system in place with more calories in the day of training probably not going to make much of a difference. So the average person not going to make much of a difference. They're not going in there and having people drop jaw and watching them saying, "Oh my gosh, this guy's on a on a mission to destroy himself today." You know, did he just catch his wife cheating on him last night? Why is he so like? Why is he so aggressive? That's not what your average person is doing in the gym, and so they don't really need. These sorts of these sorts of manipulations in place to to support the inroads that they create in the gym with their training sessions. Yeah. Well, you mentioned yeah. the workout there, and I want to come on to that. Um, before I do, Cal, would you mind just giving your sort of opinion? Yeah, hundred percent. I everyone's everyone's nailed it there in terms of the context of the situation. What Victor said in regards to it is very much that last couple of percent in terms of the focus that you would have for even like a com a competitive client. That's going to be right, let's nail the foundations first before we even think about this stuff. But it's something that I've done personally for a long time and have having some form of undulation between training days and non-training days, more so when food is high relative to when food is low, because when food is low, I'm more so going to focus on like what what is going to allow me to endure this deficit the most in, in the most kind of sustainable way possible in terms of hunger management. And normally that would be balancing that balance, balancing things out a little bit equally across the, across the week. But um, yeah. when food has been high and I, I've had, you know, numerous clients that I'll coach now and in the past where I, I try and adopt this approach as well. Um, I, I would preferentiate more nutrients towards that training window and across the training day. Um, and I think another prime example in, in giving context, Joe, is that recent push that we did together when we were using, 
um, exogenous insulin and, and driving more nutrition around the training window on those training days. So it was, where I was, I was actually running Fortitude and the four training days a week we'd have, I think we got up to just over a thousand grams of carbs and we used insulin on those days, um, on the four training days. And then the, the rest days were backing off quite significantly with carbohydrate, no insulin. Um, and this, that balance across the week allowed me to manage fluid much better and my appetite as well. Um, but obviously it's an extreme scenario, but it means that, you know, that, that 5% allowed me to kind of maximize everything I could out of that phase. Um, so it's just context dependent, like Victor said. Yeah. And yeah. I'll, you I'll know, one of, oh, sorry, Austin, go ahead. I was going to say, well, I'm not going to give my viewpoint because that's not why I'm here, but I, you, Scott, you made a good point that I think it might get missed in there was that especially for people like gen pop that you might want to use this with, it doesn't have to be complicated. It can be something as simple as don't eat the potatoes in meal three. You know what I mean? Like you can, <laughs> right. you know what I mean? That's it's, it's, or, or like you said, just don't have your intro workout shake or whatever. I mean, you can easily, cause I, I, I get what Victor's saying about, you know, overcomplication. So gen pop clients, it could be as simple as the same exact meal plan minus a couple things. Mm-hmm. You know, so it wanted to reiterate that it doesn't have to be that complicated for the, add, you know, lower level people. Can I just extend that, guys? I guess what I, what I, what I meant yeah. by that is, is this and that is, it, it is my experience, at least, that especially today in this environment where, you know, looking at the evidence has become the flavor of the month, as it were, during evidence-based training, as it were, that, that a tremendous number of people have kind of almost like crawled down the rabbit hole and are, you know, hyper fixated on, you know, this study or this study that shows, you know, you know, it, interesting as hell, you know, but, you know, they, they, they don't really execute the fundamentals flawlessly and they're trapped on these points of minutiae, I like to call them. And I, so many people that come to me, I look at it and I just go like, I have to be honest and say, I, I just don't feel that they have the, uh, the fundamentals of you know, training and nutrition and supplementation enhancement down. And they're, you know, they're, they're looking for some, you know, what, what I like to refer to as advanced you know, model. As you cor quite correctly said, it doesn't need to be terribly complicated, but it's almost become the way it is. And you see these people that are you know, hyper-focused on, on you know, what might be marginal outcomes, but they don't have the fundamentals in place. Yeah, yes. like Scott said, the people that the people that use intra workouts but don't train hard, you know, <laughs> exactly. Well, the, people, well, the, people, the people that use PEDs and don't intra work hard. I also was going to say say too is that, uh, and I've seen this as well, is that people will be fixated on these on, on on the trees rather than the forest, and they may go into a gym or take a scenario where like, oh my gosh, I forgot my intra workout. Why don't you just like grab a scoop of protein from the gym bar and drink a Gatorade? It's like, no, I have to have highly branched cyclic dextrins and it has to be yeah. hydrolyzed way. And it's, or they, or they may forego like just grabbing some food because it's not exactly what they had on their program. And the circumstances dictate that they can't get something to eat for an hour and a half. So, so right. they miss eating after their workout because they want, they have to, they, they're worried about their intra workout or their peri workout being exactly dead on and they're not able to weigh like well, you know it's better you need to get some nutrients even if you've got a little fat in there and it happens to be saturated fat and that's just something that you've eschewed for whatever reason 
you can you can absolutely be blinded by by the, the blinded by science so to speak and mm -hmm. so when working with clients you need to consider the aspect of their personality of like how well are they going to be able to handle this um especially if you're thinking of and, and i think this victor probably resonates with you is how are they going to take the things that i've tried to teach them and then carry on with those after we're done working together when they're Correct. autonomously exercising on their own for the next decades of their life, hopefully. So in, this, in the spirit of that, can, can I just maybe explain how uh, post-workout carbohydrate intake works very quickly, and then Scott, you can <laughs> tear me apart because it's probably- Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> so I, I just think it might be important to people listening to understand it, because when, when people, I find often people talk about things, but they don't really understand the underlying mechanism of what we're trying to do here. So very quickly, when you go to the gym and you undertake a, 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 a training bout, you effectively initiate a, a muscle protein synthesis event. And the ingestion of you know, essential amino acids basically increases and, 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 and supports that muscle protein synthesis event. Now, what a lot of people don't understand is by adding carbohydrates into the mix, you don't actually further elevate muscle protein synthesis, at least by a significant margin. What the carbohydrate does is it has two roles. One is it aids in glycogen replenishment, but it's actually the insulin that's consequential to the, to the carbohydrate intake that actually reduces muscle protein breakdown. And it's the muscle protein breakdown together with the increase in muscle protein synthesis that causes a, a difference between using carbs and not using carbs. Is that, is that a fair description, Scott? That, you know, if that's actually kind of a, a point of contention in the literature and um, because yeah, as far as carbs elevating protein synthesis, yeah, the, the data haven't really shown that. And muscle protein breakdown is a, is a difficult thing to measure. It's not typically actually measured. It's, um, it tends to, tends to change in favor or in the same direction as muscle protein synthesis. So the, great, the more difficult to work out, let's say, the greater the extent of increase of muscle protein synthesis as well as breakdown. But people will often note that the breakdown is only a small percentage. The relative changes are only a small percentage compared to protein synthesis. But I definitely think there's something there. And also, insulin can have an anabolic effect in terms of increasing protein synthesis when essential amino acids are in place. And of course, you also want non-essentials. There's some nuances there. Um, but you need to have an increase in blood flow, which is something that happens during a workout, obviously, and you can have a residual effect too. So there's some data suggesting that it can both have an impact on breakdown and, and synthesis. But um, yeah, those things haven't been, been teased out and studied as directly because it's, it's a typical thing to do. I think it's quite expensive um, mm -hmm. to do some of those and, and technologically, technically difficult to do some of the breakdown measurements. So that's so a, my, there's some rabbit holes my, that are pretty interesting there, actually. So my question for you would be, if, if and take about everything you said, if that if there is a role there for insulin in terms of you know attenuating muscle protein breakdown and contributing to it going that way, question I always have is what, what happens if we're using drugs, if we're using enhancement practices that effectively minimize muscle protein breakdown in and as of themselves, and, and what's the consequence of that? And then if that's true, then really what's the differential between 100 grams of carbs or here or there like it seems to me like it has to be of interest and and anecdotal you know observation says there's there's merit there but to me it has to be like it's starting to get into that sub fractional percentage return 
Well, here, here's, here's an interesting, that this is an interesting, there's an interesting study that's out there. And that, that notion, I think you were kind of hinting towards that you, you obviously you don't want to completely blunt, nullify muscle protein breakdown because you likely need the turnover. You need to break down the synthesis in conjunction with one another in, in order to remodel the myofibrils and increase the, the, the cell size in that way. There's a particular study, and this was done just with carbohydrate. Tar Penning is the first author, 2001. I can send it to Joe, and if he wants to pass it along to the listeners, they, I've mentioned this many a time now. But they just gave, uh, and this was in an inter-workout fashion, they gave small boluses throughout the course of, a, of the workouts over the course of, I think that was 12 weeks. And uh, they, what the, one of the things they found was that there was variations in the extent to which drinking this was, it was actually Gatorade. Uh, about 50 grams on average, it was given on a, on a per body weight basis, uh, depressed cortisol. And the thing about cortisol being a steroid hormone is that its effects on protein metabolism don't manifest instantaneously. Um, it takes some time in order you know, for the, the, the hormone to have its effect on genetic expression, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So when they, when they took, in this case, they, they lumped all of their... Um, all the subjects together, both those who got carbohydrate and those that didn't. Of course, those who got carbs had a greater blunting of the cortisol response from training. They found that when they correlated those changes in cortisol with the eventual muscle growth that, that happened over the course of the about three-month training plan, the correlations were like 0.7 to 0.8. I think one was maybe even 0.86 or something like that. So that's, that's, that is a really strong correlation in, in statistical terms. It wasn't actually with a lot of, uh, a lot of, they didn't have a huge subject pool. So there's something going on there in terms of blunting cortisol, which, uh, which seems to, which is something that happens with carbohydrate, which has an effect that lasts, that persists, not just immediately after the workout, but probably for, uh, you know, hours thereafter because of the, just the nature whereby which cortisol is a steroid hormone has its effects on, on protein synthesis. So that's, that's one of the, and that was just 50 grams. So that wasn't a matter of, of calories. Um, I don't think the calories were any different between the groups. I have to go back and look at that study. There've been several nice pre-workout recovery or inter-workout drink studies that have shown that they get an effect based on the timing, not changes in the actual nutrient content. But that's something that's really fascinating because there's actually another study which people say, well, doesn't this contradict this that, that suggests that the elevations of cortisol that come with a given workout are predictive of the eventual training gains that someone will make. And that to me is reflective of the harder you train, the greater you elevate cortisol. And then that has an impact on breakdown. And that's predictive of the, the, the very simple thing that we all know is that those who train the hardest tend to make the greatest gains, all those things being equal. So, but just a small amount of, of carbohydrate was able to have this impact. And there have been studies, there's, I think it's the cribbin Hayes study where they gave just six grams of essential amino acids and I think it was 40 grams of carbohydrate as an intra-workout or maybe it was before and after split into two doses. And so not a lot, like we're talking, you know, less than 100 grams of carbohydrate here for sure. And they were greater gains in muscle uh, fiber growth in the, in the subjects who got compared to placebo, which was nothing in the, in the essential amino acids, the carbohydrates only, and the combination was the best, generally speaking. There are some nuances because they measure different fiber types, but that was the, 
the trend that was very evident when you looked across all those groups. So my, my, the best explanation I have is that the carbohydrates and providing the, the fuel there, um, which can also have an ergogenic effect, Greg Half has shown that to some degree, um, that carbohydrate during a workout can allow you to train a little bit harder. And that, that just those, I mean, that's what progressive overload usually, usually manifests as is just an extra rep or two. So getting an extra rep or two on a regular basis may be enough to propel gains in a way that's noticeable to someone um, who's paying close attention to those things. And it's important for them, their high level competitor, what have you. But I think just so there's, there's various pieces, the anabolism part, the cortisol part, the ergogenic part that, that really suggests that it doesn't, it's not a matter of just piling in massive amounts of calories per se, um, that you can impact the hormonal responses uh, and potentially the, the, uh, the, there's an impact on, er on the, uh, the actual workout itself in terms of ergogenic effects that can combine to create a lasting and overall effect on muscle growth. Okay, so Scott, I, I just wanted to ask your opinion. I am by no means an academic. I consider myself literally to be a guy that's trying to understand the evidence and, and, and determine what can we apply from, from, from our understanding of what the, the science says. One of the challenges is you've you know, gone in and listed off a, a string of studies that would show fairly support for your argument. The, the challenge for me is, um, and I can, I can actually give you a list of the studies, but I don't think it's relevant here, that, that seemingly contradict everything you just said. And I, I wanted to ask your opinion about how does someone like me, who's not an academic, but is interested in trying to understand and interpret the evidence, feel when you, when you have, let's just say, four studies that you rattled off about cortisol, and then you have studies. I don't know, for example, there was a series of studies done on the role of carbohydrates in, in muscle protein breakdown and, 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 and all the response. Guys like Glynn in you know, 2010 mm -hmm. and that, that fundamentally say, uh, that's not right. You know, what, what, what would you provide as, what, where do I go next? How, how do I take those studies and create a practical application when they are seemingly contradictive? Some of my answer to that will depend on how motivated the person is to sort of self-educate themselves and dig in. Because I, I think, and, and, Victor, you are an extraordinary, capable, intellectual person, and you you can't you can't although you haven't maybe been formally trained as an academic, you can get just through common sense a lot of what needs to be gotten from these studies in terms of taking them into the gym, so to speak, just by first reading reading the abstract, and then look. You can you can travel down rabbit holes galore if you like and try to figure out what some of the methods mean and. You could even try to learn some, some basics of statistics. That's probably the hardest thing that's beyond most people's grasp is whether the statistical analysis has been done, quote, unquote, mm. properly, which is kind of a guessing game in, it, in any way, is ask yourself, okay, does, do these subjects, to what extent do these subjects um, match me or what I'm trying to do? And many of those studies are simply, they're not going to have what's called external validity. You can't externally... You can't take what was done within the internal workings of that study and apply that externally to you, a different population, someone who's been training for 30 years or someone who's trying to get up on stage. And that will, for many people, that will parcel out a large number of those studies to sort of into the you know, secondary considerations. And 
just with with newbies and this is and this is a nice just general thing to kind of cover is that you've got probably a ceiling effect you can take and anyone who's coached people and people experience this for themselves when you start off and you are just starting training for the first time you're gonna if unless your genetics are just just horrendous you're gonna make great gains rapidly no matter what that makes that's nice to study because then you have some sort of an effect to look at did creatine or intra workout or supplement X or training strategy Y or what have you impact this. But it also means that it may not make a damn bit of difference. You're going to just grow no matter what you do to some degree, you can make all sorts of quote unquote errors. Um, and the other thing, and this is the thing that I, I brought this up on a, a podcast recently, and it's, it's something that I've, I haven't really addressed directly, but it's, it's really, really important is the point of, of, of the, the scientific studies in most cases, we're, we're using the statistics to basically answer the question from a layperson's perspective. We're not talking about, you know, how you're formulating your hypotheses and that sort of thing is what would happen sort of, what would be my best guess as to what would happen on average, so to speak, if we compared this strategy with this strategy or this supplement with this, with a placebo sure. or et cetera, et cetera. And what really, that the person in the gym who's looking for extraordinary results, the more, more, more uh, valid question for them is what is possible? Are there, is there evidence, are there clues in some of these studies or in simply the responses or adaptations of some of these subjects that tells me that there is something possible that can be done there? Mm -hmm. Are there extreme responders to this or are there studies that for instance, have been constructed with resistance trained individuals who show that at least in, in that lab, and we're gonna just presume that there wasn't any fabrication of data that does happen without a doubt, but at least in that lab that there can be an effect. So that, that could be just as important that this can be something we can leverage um, for, our, for our own goals as bodybuilders. And then the other side of the coin is you can, you can say do no harm. Think of it sort of, a, so what are the negatives of doing this? And like one of the negatives I pointed out was like some people can get so fixated on an intra workout that then they just, <clears throat> they're worried about like having the exact ingredients. And if they don't have that, because they've, they've got an obsessive compulsive type of strain in their, in their personality, they want to do exactly that. And if they can't, then they just, they sort of blow off the nutrition altogether. And that obviously is not the way to go overall. They're missing the forest from the trees. So is there anything wrong with this particular approach? Is this going to in any way hinder me? Am, am, do I have to, you know, do I have to literally, you know, spend an hour putting together this drink, which, you know, obviously might not be worth the potential benefit, but then are there studies showing that there is something that possibly may happen? So let's say if the carbohydrate, you, you actually brought up a very good point. Let's say the carbohydrate has, let's say there's nothing to, to say for insulin, you know, it just does kind of have a permissive effect on muscle protein synthesis and elevating insulin beyond that. Even with the essential amino acids, that's just kind of a, that was a bizarre study that, you know, Scott was talking about. It has no impact there, but it's nice to have, have replenished glycogen. That's sure. a good thing, especially. So, so there's a benefit that could have, be had there. So the main thing I, I think is that really 
from someone who's who's trying to trying to use the literature as a guide and really it's just that it's not a black and white this works and that works because literally we're we're talking about statistical probabilities here without a doubt these are not absolutes because people will say and this is one of my pet peeves that this study proves this hmm. and you know you can maybe prove something in a court of law or if you're a mathematician you can do a proof where the mathematics are basically you know giving you exact proofs that this is the case so to speak but in 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 science where we're using inferential statistics you're just providing evidence to support a particular notion but it's not always the case without a doubt so so, so someone that's like really uh like very old school i've been training 34 years i, I developed a, a methodology a long long time ago to try to better understand anecdotal observation from the tribe and, and and it fundamentally goes something like this and that is if you ask 10 people a question and you get 10 answers and we've all been there this is incredibly frustrating for the general public people are trying to learn every single person i ask gets a different answer we've all experienced that yeah mm -hmm. but there are some questions when you ask 10 people you'll get pretty much unanimous response so if i was to ask all of the coaches on this call here how important is adherence? I think everyone's going to say, like, it's not negotiable. You know, right. it, it just has to be done. Is, uh, you know, in a, a, a you know, quote unquote, higher protein intake going to be beneficial to our tribe? Yes. I mean, obviously, the devil is in the detail, but I don't think anyone is going to say no. You, mm -hmm. you follow what I'm saying? There's yeah. certain things you get unanimous agreement, and certain things where you ask 10 people, you literally get 10 different opinions. And one of the techniques I used over the years was saying, well, if you ask 10 people and you get 10 different opinions, that's a probably a pretty good proxy to say that doesn't matter too much. You should focus your time on the things where you get unanimous agreement. Do you think that you could take that model and apply it to studies where if you look at 10 studies and nine of them say this, then man, you should probably pay attention to that. And if you look at 10 studies and you get 10 different answers, you could probably put aside and say, you know what, I probably better off spending my time on something else. Generally, yes, but let's let's say that you are someone who's extraordinary, and when you look at those studies, they're they're literally sampling a population that is not you. Let let's say you are you're an albino. I'm just gonna just I'm just kind of pulling this example. Sitting here looking at the sunny skies here in Florida, and you're an albino, and you want to know like you know, so is the sun gonna be bad? You've never come out of your house. Is the sun gonna be bad for my skin? And you just so happen to live in an area, you live in the Middle East and everyone's got brown skin and they can, you know, they're, they're because of their genetics, they've got plenty of melanin, they've got plenty of ways to, to dissipate ultraviolet rays, they're good to go. They can go out in the sun all day and, and you know, they're fine. Average person in, in that area where they've done studies can go out in the sun most of the year for a couple hours and not suffer any ill effects. No increase in skin cancer, blah, 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 blah. But you're an albino. <laughs> you're... You're, you're different. So that's a, obviously a very, very uh, extraordinary example. But those studies on those individuals don't apply to albinos. There's not, you have to find the studies that apply to albinos. And for instance, the, um, uh, the Schoenfeld, I think is Alan Aragon and Schoenfeld, they did a, a review and a meta-analysis looking at protein timing. And this is one that went, you know, I know you probably were in numerous discussions. You, you actually... Uh, the Glenn study was one you mentioned, I think, was included in that particular 
review. Yep. And there were 23 studies in that review and only three or four of those were with trained individuals. Yep. They didn't even have enough in that meta-analysis to do a sub-analysis to see if there was a difference in training status when it came to their outcomes was whether protein timing mattered or not. So, so yes, if you go ask 10 people um, and you, you went into the gym, I mean, how many go, go into your average gym across America, LA fitness, 24 hour fitness, you know, all the big box gyms and look at how those people train. If like, you want to throw, what's the best way to train? Like, let's take another facetious example. Like the best way to train, you go in those gyms and say, well, this is how most of those people train. I should just train like this. I'll read the newspaper while I do knee extensions. And I'll, you know, I'll chat for 10 minutes and I'll do like a couple sets here and there. And that obviously would not inform you at all. You do what actually speaking would, would go back, you know, make it old school. This is what, how Dante Trudell developed DC training in part with, you know, with himself, but looking around and seeing like, how do the, how do the, the badasses train? They went mm -hmm. into the, they were, they're the guys that push things really hard, so hard they couldn't get away with a lot of volume. And that's what he he took as his observations to develop, and I can't speak for Dante entirely, but those are the things I understand he took his observations to, uh, to develop DC training. So, yeah, so you're, you're right. Absolutely. That makes sense. And that's exactly really what, what science does as best it can um, is it looks at the average and tells you what on average you would expect. And if you see the given various assumptions of the methods that, yeah, it's probably, uh, you know, less than a one in 20 chance that these differences would happen randomly. Then we, that's our, our, our critical P value of 0.05 or 5% chance or less that this is not something that just randomly occurred, which could still be the case, of course. And we kind of go with that, but that's, that's really, that's somewhat arbitrary. I, I need to go and look, I dug this out years ago, like that P value of 0.05, which is just, no one's ever going to go scoff at that. When you, if you, if you use a P value 0.05 as your critical value for whether you say this did or didn't work. And I've had some interesting discussions on my discussion board um, on this. There's one person asking really good questions and he's like, he looks at the data of these studies sometimes and he's like, those numbers are, those are substantially different in my mind or those were not substantially different, but the P value was the maker or breaker. So literally you can say, you know, in the Boree study where they gave 50 grams of carbohydrate, looked at post-exercise muscle protein synthesis and found, I think it was Boree, or it starts with the B, was the guy's, the first author's name. I can't recall right now, but it wasn't Boree, it was another one. And Is that Bolshoi? Boston, yes, that was the one, I think, yeah. yes. Something like that. Nothing, nothing happened there. And that's just, you know, they can say that in the abstract and they can say that scientifically speaking, because that's the convention is that there is no difference. And when you, when you hear that, you read that there was no difference. There was no effect. You tend to think of that as quote unquote proof that applies to everyone. And they don't in many, many studies show you the individual data points. Instead, of course, they represent the data as averages with some standard deviation or a standard error. And um, actually, if you look, in many cases, you can look at the standard error bars and see how close, just by sort of sizing up visually, the mm. differences in means were um, to becoming to being statistically significant. Um, so, but but they're not showing the individual data points, and that the people we're looking at when you go in the gym, you don't you don't seek out the person who doesn't look like he lifts. 
you seek out the guy who looks like he lifts and you pay attention sure. to what he does. So you can do the same thing with the studies. It's like, who were the, who were done with the guys who lifts? Where were the studies that, that, that showed the effect that I'm hoping to get some improvement in muscle growth or what have you. And then you can like, so where are the problems with, where are the flaws with these studies? Then go in and rip them to shreds. They didn't measure this. They didn't measure that. Maybe it was a placebo effect. Was everyone blinded? Were they not blinded? Mm -hmm. um, could I, you know, one of the things that has been tossed out in the context of another well-known study was Brad Schoenfeld's sort of renowned volume study, 45 sets a week for fit up to failure um, in the way they sort of counted sets. And you're like, is that something that I could, does that in any way, shape or form apply to how, how I would be able to train? Could I train with and do 45 sets to what I consider to be muscle failure? No friggin' way. That would, I would, I would be, I'd be in the hospital with rhabdo after a week. It's not going to happen. So you can sort of, you can say this is information that applies and, and, and like applies to what they did in their scientific context in their lab, the way they, the way they, what they considered failure to be. But does that match what I do or is how valuable is that to me? Probably not a lot because I know for a fact that I couldn't get away with that. Okay, so, we started talking a bit about intra-workouts in there, and we've yes. got a bit of, of your opinion there, Scott, and a bit of Victor. I want to give Cal and Christian a, a chance to, to speak here a bit. So if you two could... Yeah, can, I, noise, can I speak? For fuck's sake, man. <laughs> <laughs> speak up, Christian. What the hell do you have to say here? So a very common question we got was, is there value in consuming amino acids and carbohydrates intra-workout? And, and another common question was, you know, does this only pertain to... Um, caloric restriction where we want to really avoid muscle protein breakdown is this only applicable for natural trainees etc so if we could start maybe with you two digging in on that and then we'll go to victor and scott on that one specifically yeah i want to i want to take things back a little bit here um because obviously people have voted for me to be on this apparently um and i, I my following is i don't know um Joe, what am I trying to say here? Then pop. Yeah, that's better. Um, so, it's, I'm going to relate it back to what Victor said at the start. This is pointless with no context. Well, not pointless, but you know what I mean? You need context here for the individual. Okay. I value all these things that we're talking about highly, and I wouldn't do it any other way. But it's also incredibly person-dependent. Okay. As an example, I have a client who is in, in who is in an Indian household. She is general population. She has no desire to compete. She just wants a better physique. And twice a week, she has to have a sit-down meal with her family. Am I going to place intra-workout higher than a meal at the end of the day, which is going to be higher in fats and higher in carbohydrates? No, because... At the end of the day, it's down to adherence mainly, I think. That was just going back to the start. Intra workout. Um. Well, I will say for context, um, me and Austin know, based on our demographic and this being optimal physique development, the people that listen to this podcast tend to be the people that are trying to nail the, the, yeah. 
the small rocks, the small 0.5%. So maybe if we, because, you know, without context, we're lost. So maybe if we continue the discussion with that context, that let's say the individual is trying to get everything they can. Then 100%. Like, and again, it, it's, it's situational dependent. For me, I train at 7am and I don't eat before I train. I need, in, in my opinion, an intra-workout to get me through those sessions, to get me through recovering after, during, fueling performance, make sure I'm not going to pass out whilst I'm training as well. Yeah, so, um, so why? Did you say you need it? It'd be good so people listening might think, why does he need it? Why can't he just, you know, hasn't he eaten enough the day before to fuel the workout? I mean, you could, you could say that. And you could also say, oh, it might be placebo effect, but placebo effect works. Um, whether or whether or not it's not working, but... To be fair, I can't say I've ever done it without. So it's hard to say, would I notice a difference if I didn't have it? All I know is that whilst I'm training, I'm depleting glycogen, etc. I need to refuel whilst I'm training. Okay. And I need to as well. I had someone comment on my YouTube this morning, Joe, oh. saying about how he thought 300 gram of carbs post-workout was obscene. How much insulin am I using? And all I wanted to say was, I don't train like a bitch. So I'm going to need it. You know what I mean? Um, okay, so so you use an intra-workout carbohydrate and amino acid, right? So so you've given you've given the reasons for why you would use a carbohydrate because you're 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 performing a glucose intensive activity. What about the amino acid in there? I want to hold protein whilst I'm training. Um, so. I want to be nailing every single box is essentially why we want to do that. So I'm going to be putting a whole protein source in there whilst digesting carbohydrates as well. Cal, do you want to come in? Uh, Like for all of my clients or the majority of my clients that I'd even consider this stuff with, they're the kind of individuals that would care about the 1% because they wouldn't have signed up with me and paid the amount of money they're going to pay to be coached by me if they weren't willing to reek out every single variable they could do to make them a better athlete. So for those individuals, even in, even if the in the back of my mind, I was like, is this really making them a better athlete? Is this making them recover better? Is this making them perform better? Like it's not going to be a night and day difference. It's going to be a minuscule difference for most people that are nailing peri-workout nutrition from the actual foods they're eating because if i get someone to eat a sufficient meal in protein leucine amino acid profile you know two hours pre-training the majority of the time we can guarantee the fact that their day's worth of eating leading into that training window and the day prior is going to give them everything they need to perform at what capacity they can but if we can add in another one percent from nailing that pre-workout window nutrition from the perspective of if they're using a carbohydrate powder like secret dextrin for example an essential amino acid like and the fact they have the finances to invest in those things um i know for a fact that if even if i told my clients not to take it they probably would still take it because they don't want to leave any of those stones unturned because they know that well, if everyone else is using it then i'm going to use it um i think it is so drilled into people's minds now that do they need it probably not if they're nailing the nutrition around the workout window but it's almost like an innate thing that people will just automatically do now it's a good point and and this is interesting because i remember many years ago scott you were the first person i saw write articles on prairie workout nutrition on elite fts it's got to be, what it's got to be over 10 years ago you were putting that stuff on intense muscle as well and now it's uh, literally 
everybody is is sipping essential amino acids into a workout. It's, it's pretty bizarre how it's gone from from that to to it being so household now. Yeah, and Christian Christian mentioned it a little bit, like someone commenting on the amount of carbohydrates you ate post workout. Well, just for the adherence purposes, like if you're eating. I know like like for me, when my carbohydrates get high, that's one of the easiest places to put them. It's a carbohydrate that has quick gastric emptying time, digests easily. I can drink a lot of it. I mean, you know, if I can get, if you're eating 1,000 grams of carbs and you can get 200 right there in a drink, you know, I mean, that's that's also a benefit. So I think there's a lot of context, like people saying that it's worthless. Yeah, I mean, if you're eating 100 grams of carbs a day, I might just eat them pre and post workout because I'm hungry, right? But that's there's a lot of context. Yeah. So for clarity for people listening, Victor, is um, intra workout nutrition in the form of amino acids and a carbohydrate powder something that you deploy with with any clients? Say if somebody comes to you and says, "I want maximum muscle growth. I want to nail every single variable." Is that something that you include? Uh, so, so, so let me. Let me give you a, a, a approximate percentage. I would say about 1% of my clients. <laughs> I have people on my roster who are world champions. I mean, I mentioned to you the last time we spoke, I, I coach guys like uh, Paul Rowe, the you know, over 50 you know, masters world champion. Guys like Paul, you, you, all, you, all there is left after decades of training and you know, everything that he's achieved uh, uh, is what I call gravel. It's not even small rocks. <laughs> there's, mm. there's, there's nothing left. You, you turn over every sub-fractional option there is to try to give that guy some advantage. You know? And I, I have absolutely no problem with it. The, the challenge I keep going back to myself with most of my clients is we live in this time where recreational trainers are using 600 milligrams of trembolone. They just don't fucking need it. <laughs> you know? And my opinion is, is that most people, most of the time, are going to be well enough served by having an appropriate meal an hour to an hour and a half before they train, go to the gym, do their half-assed workout, and when they leave, it's time to eat again. I don't agree that most people, most of the time, need an intra-workout. The elite, that's all that's left. But we, we live in this time, as I said, where gym rats need trembolone. I disagree. You know I think that there, there are better solutions for most people right across the board from nutritional practices to supplementation practice to enhancement practice, better aligning their needs with, with what they're doing. And, and I have to say, I, I feel the same way about intra-workout nutrition. It's, I, I, I don't think it's needed for most people most of the time. Mm. So uh, of the trend. Of the trend. With that being the case, though, it sounds like you would think there there is a marginal benefit to include it. You know, let's say it was free and it was... What, 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 I, what, what I would say there, Joe, is if, if someone came to me and... I mean, I, I'd be interested in the other coaches' opinions. Most guys that come to me reach out to me. I, I like to start with the fundamentals. When was the last time you got blood work? What's your blood pressure? What's your blood glucose? And, and the amount of times I get... I don't own a blood pressure monitor. I don't own a blood glucose meter. You know, like, it's... The, the, the fundamentals are not in place. And like we start talking about what tools you use to track nutrition. Well, I fucking don't. Doing, And how much magnesium to take? How much selenium? How much you know, chromium to take? Well, I don't have a fucking clue. You know? So I truly believe that there's a, there's a place for the fundamentals, which is you know, first things first. And then eventually you get to the point where there are no fundamentals left and you have to start digging into the box of 
And as I said, small return. And I put things like inter-workout nutrition in that box. I'm not going to suggest for one fraction of a second that there's no return, but someone that doesn't know how much magnesium they're intaking, like you need to go back to basics and start with the fundamentals, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, Joe, that's like, you know, when I keep getting asked, should I be using a GDA? Well, what's your blood, blood glucose saying? What's blood glucose? No idea. <laughs> <laughs> I, I take metformin, but I don't know what it does. And let, let me say this too, because this is, this was actually, it's been in my head for a bit and you kind of touched on this, Victor, is that if someone, the, the purpose of the intra-workout is to cause those elevations in insulin reductions in cortisol, elevate blood amino acids, not just essential, but all of them would be nice to have um, right. because you can't have situations where you've got limitations, to the non-essentials. And, and uh, glucose for glycogen restoration, if you've done that, if you've uh, successfully achieved that with a meal that you took in an hour, an hour and a half before, and you, know, you can easily get a meal afterwards, mission accomplished. Hmm. You were, and that's, that's, you're not going to, I, I, would I wouldn't, wouldn't expect whatsoever that someone would see any, maybe any benefit or anything noticeable by adding in an intra-workout necessarily if they've got enough food in their system. On the other hand, you take that person, and I've seen this before, who has a diet which has, has their, their GI tract working most of the time. They're never really anywhere close to post-absorptive. Take hours and hours for the food to make its way. I know Austin's probably experienced this when his last you know, uh, period of bulking where like literally the food is, is constantly full. And yeah. you're literally always, you're almost never post-absorptive except for maybe like you know, the hour before you wake up. Right, <laughs> and you're gonna you take in that intro. You try to do a big intra workout just on top of that, and you're, you cause GI distress and ruin your workout. You can actually do harm, so to speak. So that's an important important nuance of this. And you know, I'll, I'll I guess since I'm rambling here, I'll I'll mention that as I just just sort of brought up is that just as essential amino acids are are those that your body cannot produce from other amino acids. They, they need to come in dietarily. And that's, that's um, not, uh, uh, it's no, no coincidence that those happen to be also the amino acids that turn on various, various aspects of protein synthesis. Basically, the construction project can get underway once we have these essentials, because otherwise, whatever the body would try to produce would eventually be limited by those. So those basically get the, get the mojo working on on myofibrillar protein synthesis. But you can also have a situation where you're limited by the non-essentials as well. And that would be most likely the kind of scenario like when someone wakes up and goes to the gym and hasn't eaten, and maybe especially if they're dieted down so there's nothing coming in from the GI at that point in time. Um, you could also run into that, that issue. And that's been, there's a Churchill Ward is the, it's one of, um, one of the studies done up at, at McMaster University with Stu Phillips uh, group where they found that you can run into those issues with, with non-essential. So in the morning, for instance, if your first meal is literally going to be your intra-workout, because this is a common scenario. Someone has to get up, literally they're, they literally roll out of bed, you know, the shoes and clothes are right there. They, they, they jump into their pants, you know, two legs at a time and they run out the door and their breakfast is their intra-workout. In that case, a whole protein source, like a whey protein or something like that, that has all the amino acids available is makes more sense. So in that case, yeah, I can imagine that would make a big difference for someone like that who otherwise might not eat. I mean, imagine, imagine the worst case scenario. They don't eat, they wake up in the morning, they, they lift, 
and they come home, they shower, they zip past, they maybe have a cup of coffee out the door, and then they don't eat until lunchtime. Probably not the best way to distribute the nutrients throughout the day. That's, then that intra-workout could be an important first meal of the day, whereas someone who's taking in plenty of calories, there's plenty of food coming in during the workout, they try to add an intra-workout to, to, uh, to their program, their nutritional strategy, and now they're trying to train legs, they've got a really sympathetic strong sympathetic drive going and now they just get an upset stomach that makes it difficult to train and they actually have impaired the training stimulus trying to use an intra-workout that that's that's a no-go so it could both be relatively important for your average person who's got a nine to fiver and and detrimental for someone who is otherwise doing a good job of dotting the i's and crossing the t's and they just sort of went overboard trying to do too many things and not not seeing the forest from the trees again Hey, Scott, I got a quick question for you. Here's then this is not maybe not as educational, but when I know when I had pushed, you mentioned the sympathetic drive, right? Because obviously we know digestion is quite the opposite. Mm -hmm. So it, when those intra workouts get really high, there's kind of a point of diminishing returns there in terms of digestion. You have to be more selective in the type of carbohydrates you use and whatnot. And you mentioned you'd been using them for so long. I was curious what kind of carbs you guys were using 20 years ago. Because, <laughs> I mean, there wasn't cyclic dextrin or carmelin or any of that. Was it just like dextrose, maltodextrin? The maltodextrin tends to do better. But, but yeah, I had, I had a client who was running on a limited budget. He actually was, he was a national-level guy. He placed, I think, in the top six at the junior nationals. And, you know, he was just working a, a, a tough job and, and he just used whey concentrate and dextrose. Yeah. And um, yeah. maybe we switched them all to dextrin. But the thing is, and this has been demonstrated in the, in the endurance um, arena where there can be some, your, your GI will get used to this. You'll, you will have an adaptation, even though, yes, while you're exercising, you basically your autonomic nervous system is, is geared up very differently than when, you know, just right. going back and, and relaxing. But, you, and he got used to it. It wasn't comfortable. I mean, I've, people have heard me talk about when I, I just, you know, I would test these things out and that's the way in which I sort of know, um, at least in my own, from my own perspective, whether there's some value there. And I usually just kind of, if there, if I think the line might be here, I'd try to cross the line just to be sure. And I was up over 2000 calories in an intra workout at one point in time. And that was, well, I was yeah. really full, I was really full, but I was, I was doing DC training at the time. And so it wasn't like this high volume type of thing. And I was able to get through the workouts. It did not impair them. I just adjusted, you know, and, um, and I was able to do that. It's not something you, anyone should probably just jump right into, but right. you can adjust. So that's the thing. Like Victor might come in through scenarios. Someone's saying, well, they're going to you know pay extra to get highly branched cyclic dextrins you know, shipped to them and they're playing like, you know, they're, they're basically paying the price of gold for this, this highly specialized carbohydrate powder. It's like, you know, you could just have some chicken and rice like an hour and a half beforehand and you'd, right. you'd accomplish the same thing, but you're, right. you know, $18 for an intra workout. Yeah. Can I, can I, let me cheeky guys and, 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 and slightly shift the conversation to the left a little bit. And I, I just want to explain where, where I think nutrient timing is profoundly important and it's not often spoken about, yeah? Mm -hmm. So in my opinion, where that is, in, is in understanding that really this conversation is focused around saying, look, the training window and what we do around the training window 
has priority. And I believe that, you know, probably a more practical approach is saying, look, what you do in the 24 hours leading up to that training window and what you do in the 72 hours leading away from that training window needs to come first. When you have that sorted, then by all means, move on to the training window as, as, as a secondary discussion. It makes sense. But don't focus on that at the expense of what, what did you do in the 24 hours leading up to and the 72 hours leading away from the window itself? Because if you talk about something like glycogen storage, not many people know that um, you know, glycogen storage is biphasic. So in other words, about 15% of glycogen storage happens in very short order. But most glycogen storage actually takes longer than that. It takes about 24 hours to realize full glycogen storage. A lot of people have this perception that, well, I can replenish my glycogen storage in the, in the 60 minutes following a training event. And that's simply in my opinion, not correct. You can you know, replenish some of it, but to realize full glycogen storage, you need to consider, like you need to focus on a longer time frame. And so my primary point would be here is, if you look at your behaviors and say, look, in the 24 hours leading up to, and the 72 hours leading away from a training event, I'm doing everything that I could possibly do to have nutrient you know, position in place. I'm taking appropriate protein quantities, I'm taking fats, I'm taking carbohydrates, have an abundance of fruits and vegetables in my diet, I'm covering my micronutrient intake, I'm spreading them out over the day so that those cofactors required for you know, everything that's required is you know, available when and as it's needed, then it just makes sense to go, well, what's next? But as I said, I, I see a lot of guys that you know, don't even pay attention to nutrient, you know, micronutrients. They don't have an abundance of fruit and vegetables in their diet. Their, their, their focus is on protein, carbs, fats. And, and really that's kind of short-sighted to me. Where are the micronutrients and how are you timing those? Are you, you, know, are you, are you spreading your micronutrients out over the course of the day? So as, as your body basically undertakes you know, a micro, uh, sorry, a, a protein synthesis event that you not only have the protein, but you have the cofactors that are fundamentally required to sustain that process, on hand through nutrition and said it's get that right get that nailed and then by all means move on to the second step in the process so if anybody wants to come back to victor on that one please let me know I'll discuss that one further or i can go on to the last discussion point i had here um interrupt me if you like um but the last point i'll just i'll just say this that you know there people who maybe uh are not are, are trying all the highfalutin uh, types of strategies and they, they've got their intra-workout nutrition and they're, they're, you know, they've, got a, they've got more supplements on their counters than they do food in the fridge and the cupboard, um, might, might think, well, maybe I need to go back and maybe I've got some things I need to remedy in a way such that I will then be able to get whatever I possibly could out of these other strategies. Mm. You know, if you're yeah. nutrient deficient in some way, shape, or form, um, just, and, and that, that can, ha I was, I had a vitamin D deficiency, um, last year that I would never would have expected. I took care of that and I noticed an immediate difference. So yeah. there's something to say for that. You know, you can get more bang for your buck from these small rocks. If you've got the big rocks in place too. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Victor, I really, that really like hit home sort of thing. Uh, when you said that, cause not a lot of people will think of it like that. You need to nail absolutely everything else first around the window before utilizing that window. Yeah, I guess the reason I, I, I make such a big point about it is 
it's just my opinion. I spend a lot of times on Facebook forums looking at guys that are using all these drugs and I don't see the return. I see a lot of guys using pre-workouts and you know, intra-workout carbs. And I, I don't see the return, Durian. You, you, at the elite end, you see the return, but the, the, the man in the gym, you know, the typical guy who's on the journey, they, they've got all the tools, but I don't see the return. And very often when I sell, I lift the cupboard, I just go like, you don't have the fundamentals in place. So get the fundamentals in place then, by all means, let's move forward, yeah? Bro, I've got absolutely every single thing in place and I still don't see any return. <laughs> <laughs> You know, there's a thing that, that I mentioned. I've got a, a, a talk that I do that's, that's, that says, why don't you look like a pro? And I go through some of the various genetic I love, I things. Yeah. yeah, it's kind of a fun talk to give. But at the end, I, I say, and this, this applies to your thought there, Victor, is that, you know, guys are people, your average person is looking at, you know, what are all the big guys doing? And they may be using trend and they may be doing this, that, and the other. But they may also have genetics that are far superior to yours and they don't have to um, train with all out intensity and, you know, eke out rep by rep workout out or workout or push at the, at the dinner table and push the food and pay attention to these details because they've got the genetics that allows them to look phenomenal without that. So then you ask yourself, like this, this harkens back to what we spoke about earlier is does, does their journey really apply to me? Like I'm, tr I have a, I have a totally different path to, to, to follow in order to get, to where I could possibly get as a bodybuilder. And for instance, like Christian just said, you know, he's doing everything. I would, his, his path and his strategies are probably more applicable to your average person because he has to do everything possible to get every ounce of muscle than, you know, saying like, this is what so-and-so named the pro who is the poster person for the supplement companies. Those are probably the people that you, that the average consumer is going to get the least amount of information from because those people have genetics which wash away the meaningfulness of all the things that most people really need to focus on, which are the basics. Overcooking that a bit, Christian. You make good progress. <laughs> I'm only, I'm only joking. <laughs> um, I guess so, I, when you look at like these got oh my god, sorry, um, who have got like amazing genetics and they just fucking half arse it. Do you ever think like? Imagine if they did what we did. Mm. Okay, so the last topic that people voted for a discussion on is macronutrient manipulation and metabolic flexibility slash insulin sensitivity. So essentially, you know, should there be days that we should be eating less carbohydrates and, and more fats if we want to maintain insulin sensitivity for longer or establish some degree of metabolic flexibility? Who wants to kick it off? I, can, I, can I leave that one off, Joe? All right. Well, Cal, you haven't spoken for ages. Yeah, sorry, sorry, mate. Yeah, I'm still here. Don't worry. <laughs> I was chowing on a meal. Um, well, this is something I've done. Again, it's a similar thing. It's something I've done for a while. Um, I, I like to do this because I also like the novelty nutritionally as well. Like if I'm eating the same shit every day and I'm eating the same meals every day i do tend to get a little bit bored when especially when food is high so the novelty of having some meals that i know on train days are going to be higher carb and then from a preference perspective some meals on rest days which are predominantly higher fats um like we set up the diet job for, for that kind of push that we did in terms of um 
you know, the first kind of like four meals and rest days were pro fat based. And then every meal on a training day was relatively high carb. Yeah. Um, I, I was obviously, I, I was using, we were using exogenous insulin. So my ability to, to control blood glucose was obviously uh, like pharmaceutically enhanced with that adjustment. But from what I've seen with clients in terms of like their overall ability to maintain appetite through gaining phases, their overall ability to, I know it sounds silly, but almost maintain their ability to stay responsive through longer gaining phases tends to be better when I'm undulating carbohydrate across the week. Although energy balance is ultimately going to be X by the end of the week, the response I see from individual to individual, particularly for males and particularly for people that are eating larger volumes of food, to grow in terms of caloric boluses they need tends to be better with individuals who are um, partition things slightly differently from training days to non-training days, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, Vic, you wanted to come in on that. Yeah, I guess I just wanted to say, in my opinion, a lot of people have these conversations without really, you know, measuring insulin sensitivity. You know, like, and I think that you know, for people who are enhanced. And their follow. I mean, you're familiar with my 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 suggestions about tools that we might use, things like metabolic modulators, things like glucose disposal agents, you know, these sorts of things. It, in my opinion, it's almost impossible to become insulin resistant if you do this the right way. Mm. You know, what I mean? it's abuse of models that can very quickly lead down that pathway. But if you're if you're moderate with products that have the potential to raise insulin resistance and you are at the same time deploying tools that can aid us in this regard. It's, it's very, very rare in my experience to see true insulin resistance present. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I see a lot of guys, you know, kind of going, I need to do this and I need to do that. And I go, yeah, but are, are you using the tools like, you know, a, a metabolic modulator? Are you using glucose disposal agents? Are you using insulin sensitizers? And in my opinion, you, you probably should be by default because of the very, very long list of benefits they bring to our, to bring to the table, you know, in, you know, in for, for our tribe. It's all, almost they should be deployed by default. And in my experience, once you deploy them, then the problem literally just goes away. Yeah. Here's another thing too just to moderate this a little bit, but how someone actually measures insulin sensitivity, like how do they, how do they quantify it outside of just looking at blood glucose levels? Cause inevitably if you're enhanced, you can just use more insulin and up to a point that's going to continue to control blood glucose, even though your requirements are, are going to go up and up and up and up that doesn't mean that you won't become insulin resistant just because your blood glucose is under a certain number doesn't necessarily mean that you're not having some insulin resistance. So, you so know what I mean? Way, and that's, the way, the it's just that being, I deal with that, sorry, the way I deal with that Austin is if you need to use more insulin, you have a problem. Right. Right. Is, is my point is that if, if it's obviously it's going to go up to some extent, but if you're noticing that it's going up quickly, then that's a different scenario. You know, if you're eating more sure. and more and more, I'm not sure. I mean, if I'm eating 300 carbs, like my, my example is if I'm eating 300 carbohydrates and then I'm eating 1200 carbohydrates, my insulin requirement is going to be different. Agreed. 
Okay. Right. I guess, I guess I guess this yeah. is the conversation we're talking about, like who are we addressing here? So as someone that addresses those that are interested in longevity and, and safer practice and things like that, I make recommendations say, look, if, if your insulin you know, resistance starts to climb to the degree that you need to use more metformin or more berberine, or you need to use more insulin, or you need to use more this or that. You know, that that's not the that's not the go ahead to use more. That's the go ahead to fix it and then you know, double back around and start again. And so, an example would be: I use five units of you know, Humalog to six five to six units Humalog. I'm 260 pounds, 200, you know, 30 pounds on stage, and I use six units of insulin. And I don't need any more because I, I absolutely recognize the point that at times I do need more and I stop and I circle back around and I fix it and start again. Sure, right, sure. Of course, there's a point, like I said, there's the point of diminishing returns. I think that's why I wanted to point that out is that it's, there needs to be a way to quantify it. And there's also other markers outside of just blood glucose i mean for example i measure fasting insulin levels on people's lab work sometimes yeah well, i mean they could have normal blood glucose but they have hyperinsulinemia where their their body is just compensating by pumping out more you know endogenous insulin which is also an issue right i mean that's not good and they'll eventually become insulin resistant from that as well so i think it's just important for people to understand and then also have if they're working with a coach like you know have someone that can visibly see the signs right because people with poor nutrient partitioning will start to develop a different look in the muscle in terms of fullness and pumps in the gym and all that so just just some good stuff there just want to toss a couple things out so uh, you you basically pointed towards it there austin you can you can find these online, uh, HOMA, uh, I think it's homeostatic measurement of assessment or something like that is the home yeah, yeah. insulin sensitivity. It's, it's just blood glucose. It's fasting post-absorptive blood glucose times um, insulin levels in that same metabolic state. And you multiply right. those two things together. So you could have someone who's got a, you know, blood glucose that's, you know, 110 milligrams per deciliter or, you know, five and a half millimolar, whatever the equivalent would be when, you know, the units of measurement. And, um, and they, but they might have really, really low insulin levels. Um, and that could be someone, for instance, who's dieted down, but they've been using growth hormone, which tends to elevate their glucose a little bit, but their insulin levels are still very low and their, and their insulin sensitivity is still okay. Still fine by that, by that measurement. Cause that's, that's basically taking into account the extent to which insulin has to be elevated, if at all, in order to maintain glucose, at something close to a normal level. So if you could have really high blood glucose and really low insulin, and that's basically a dysregulation of sorts in that you're not able to maintain, uh, your body isn't able to sense that more insulin would be needed to bring glucose down into a normal, normal range. So that's the way to kind of look at those things. Um, so, but you're right. Like the way in which things are being partitioned is, is probably a factor there. This is an interesting thing because it, it, it totally makes sense that insulin sensitivity is going to play a role, but it's not the type of thing you don't see people, um, for instance, measuring this as, which could easily be done when blood work's done. You can easily make insulin measurements and blood glucose measurements are done with a basic metabolic profile. And you could see like, so does the extent to which someone gains body fat and muscle mass, the extent to which they repartition the excess calories during a, 
a period when people are, are gaining muscle, is that reflective of the extent to which they lose insulin sensitivity using the HOMA measurement? A great research question that could be really easily answered just as a side um, measurement with regardless of what else the, the main independent variables would be. We're testing um, you know, intra-workout nutrition or anything we've, we've talked about. Um, but there is some interesting work, and of course the money goes to studying people who really have issues other than how they look in the mirror, um, in obesity research. There's a little bit of data suggesting that when they've compared high carbohydrate and low carbohydrate diets to see which works better. And, and overall, it's as goes back to what we've been saying ad nauseum almost here is that adherence is the most important thing. The, the, the diet's going to work best for you is the one you can stick to. But there, when, they, when they do seem to have uh, some control over which diet people follow, and you presume that adherence is equal in the two groups, which may not be the case always. Some people just prefer to, you know, it's, it's easier to kind of just count the two macronutrients, like no carbs is my rule and I'm good to go. That's a, you know, a nice accounting strategy, which can probably help with adherence. But back to the point is that those with poor insulin sensitivity or that tend to be more insulin resistant, at least in the obese literature, tend to do better in terms of body fat loss. It's more effective for body fat and weight loss when they take a low carb approach. So if you're insulin resistant, low carb seems to work better. But if you're not, at least this is when coming down in obese individuals, some of the data suggests that it makes a difference that you, um, you address the insulin sensitivity, which is what low carb would do, and you'll have better a better effect there. So, but what Cal mentioned with, you know, breaking things up in that way, I've been doing that, you know, for decades now. And that's, you know, I've got that in my, in my books as a strategy and it seems to work. If you have no idea, sometimes you have clients come in, you say, I say, what's your best training program and what's your best diet? And they don't have a clue. Um, and if they, if they seem psychologically uh, ready for something where, you know, it gets confusing going to the grocery store. It's like, okay, I got low carb days and I got high carb days. So, all right, I'm going to get, you know, this, all this fatty fish, but then I'm going to get some cereal from my post-workout meals. And like, you've got to like basically be of two minds when you purchase your, your, your food, because you've got two can be very disparate dietary strategies that are followed on different days of the week. But if you're someone who can do that and not get confused by it or um, feel like it's over, over, overly complicated, then that works really well, it seems, as opposed to just spreading things out. Um, and some of that could be placebo, some of it could be accounting, some of it could be adherence. I think what, what Cal had to say as far as um, you know, being ready and hungry, like you just, I like to have my clients be a little bit hungry on those non-training days, so they're just ready to rip into the calories thereafter, and you have to watch for disordered eating things that can happen here. That's it's a problem, especially with like uh, cyclical ketogenic diets where people will no carbs all week and then they just, you know, go to town on the weekend. And then when it's time to like step back from that sort of orthorexic approach, they have a hard time keeping the, um, what basically were, were sort of planned binge sessions in a way out of their life otherwise. So, but a lot, lot of thoughts there, but the insulin sensitivity thing is, see, there seems to be something to that, but I would love to see that studied more um, because there's, you know, there's a wide range of uh, distribution in terms of how people put on muscle versus body fat when in caloric excess and how it comes off on the other end too. And some of that's neat and some of it's, you know, various other things, but some of it could possibly be 
how how their diet is structured and or simply how their insulin sensitivity changes or doesn't. And the question would be then, can we manipulate insulin sensitivity as sort of like almost a primary focus? Like if you've got great insulin sensitivity, then don't worry about the carbohydrate thing. If you don't, or you're in, in risk of losing it because you're eating so many calories, is it worth your while? Is it a good strategy? And it seems to be at least, you know, in the, on the playing field, so to speak, to have those low carb days to reset insulin sensitivity in a way that, that may change the way that the calories are partitioned in the muscle versus fat. At least that's sort of my best guess so far from playing around with these things for a while. I don't want to unbreach a subject that anybody doesn't want to speak about here, but what was actually the most <laughs> topical or, or rather the most requested um, question on Instagram on this topic was regarding exogenous insulin. And, and we did just start speaking about it a little bit there, Victor, I'm guessing you're one that doesn't mind speaking about this. Um, so maybe if you could give the audience a bit of what they want, a few people are asking basically how much is too much um, at what level, basically, because we've discussed it a, a little bit on, on this podcast before, at what part of, you know, gradually increasing to pull down your blood glucose over time, should you start thinking, you know, I'm essentially hyperinsulinemic at this point. And there was also a lot of questions regarding the efficacy of insulin timing, specifically around the peri-workout with these shorter acting analogs, as opposed to longer acting analogs being deployed for hypertrophy. So, um, I know that's a huge discussion topic there. Um, and, and there may be people here that don't want to talk about that. But if you did have some thoughts on that, Victor, I'm sure people would appreciate it. Does, it, does anybody else want to go first? I feel really bad. Like I'm <laughs> well, I, I, I'm not talking to Victor here. If anybody would like to talk about it, I just don't know, you know. I'm happy to talk about it. Let me let someone else go first if they would like to. I, I, I can kind of, I'm going to I'll try to keep this short, I promise. But it, it's connected with some of the things I just mentioned. So maybe it, it makes sense. Um, is that there is variability in terms of like, so there are people that just, and, and you see this, so there's, you see a guy who's, you know, five, nine, 200 pounds, and he's putting down 5,000 calories. And he's not gaining. It's like, how can this be? And then other people, there are people who are walking around at 500 pounds and, you know, they, they're eating horrible diets, but like uh, getting to 500 pounds is something I don't think I could probably do without, just destroying my GI tract would be impossible for me. So there's, there's a wide range here. So as far as whether someone would use fast acting insulin around a workout, what Victor mentioned, like small amounts, get the most from the least. And I think the, the law of diminishing returns plays a tremendous role here. If someone's continually trying to up the ante and you've, we've seen the stories about people doing this, you know, Jordan Peters has talked about it. Dave Crossland has talked about using like ma massive amounts of, of insulin. It just seemingly isn't worth it once you're get, especially when you get getting to the hundred IU a day range type of thing. Um, many people do really well with, you know, three or four times a week, something that would maintain their insulin sensitivity. And if there's someone where that rule of thumb, as I just sort of uh, talked about is important for how the nutrients are partitioned, that is, that would make for why that would be a really good strategy because if they're using insulin, especially something that's longer acting over the course of the day, then the risk of losing that insulin sensitivity is an issue. Now, a lot of people like to use Lantus and like that's, you know, that's, 
it's appealing, I think, because now you're always anabolic. You're always anti-catabolic. You're, you're, you're always, you have that elevated insulin levels, but you're also, also always at risk of dying potentially um, in worst case scenario, because you've got that in your system for so long. That's not, that's not something that just because of that reason for me, it just, I'm like, I, I wouldn't even ever want to tread down that road. It's just something that you get in a car wreck, which you're not expecting to do. And next thing you know, you know, they take you to the hospital and they don't put you, or they figure, well, this person could probably be okay without food for a little while, but little do they know that you just injected Lantus. You're not, you're not have a diabetic bracelet on and you die in the hospital. Worst case scenario, worst things have happened to people. So anyway, one more, one more thought. And then yes, definitely jump in. In that situation where someone does keep good insulin sensitivity, they tend to be very thin, quote unquote, ectomorphic. Having insulin around more often could make it for a better strategy, potentially for those folks. So, yes, Victor, please, please do. So, so let me let me try to answer the question that Joe asked originally, and then I'd like to talk about Lancers a little bit. So, the question that Joe asked me was like, well, I, I think you're saying like, uh, at, at what point is too much? Is that is that fair, Joe? Is that what you're asking? Yeah, essentially, people were saying it because you hear a lot of things on the doses of insulin people are taking these days, and. Yeah. You know, Cal, you know this, Christian, you know this, because we both know the same people that are doing 150 units plus a day. Um, you know, how much actually is too much when it comes to, and, but we are talking maximum bodybuilding outcomes here, you know, th these people, sure. um, but how much really is it in the realm of that's ridiculous, you know? So, so what I would argue is this, and <laughs> this is completely counter to the way insulin is used in that tribe. I would say, that the moment you have to start taking carbohydrates to support your insulin use, you've crossed the line. In my opinion, the way you in use insulin is you measure the insulin out to support your current nutritional practice and optimize it. Yes. And the moment you have to start saying, well, I want to use 30 units of insulin, let me figure out how many carbs I need to take to support that, you've, you've, you've crossed that threshold. So in other words, if I have my breakfast and I plan my breakfast and I say, right, I, I, this is my normal breakfast and I have you know, 50 grams of carbohydrates on the table and I want to put five units of insulin with that, that's really just taking, you know, insulin's natural role in bodybuilding and, and, and just optimizing it, tweaking it, tuning it. You could even make an argument that there is a case for insulin in anti-aging practice simply by virtue of the fact that we as bodybuilders tend to eat so much goddamn food that years and years and years and years of ingesting this much food places tremendous strain on the pancreas and just providing some relief even just at natural levels, even not at super physiological dosing is a, anti, a valid anti-aging practice just to provide some offset of strain on the pancreas. So you're not even realizing a performance outcome. You're just saying, you know what, jamming all these carbs into myself day after day after day is, is placing a strain on my pancreas. Just using a little insulin has the potential to alleviate that strain, but I'm not even using it in a performance setting, if that makes sense. But in general, most guys that talk about insulin talk about it in terms of this is the amount of insulin that I want to use. God, God knows where they got that number from. And then they start calculating the amount of carbohydrate they need to ingest at that point in time to support its use. And I just think that's, that's not how diabetics use insulin. That's not how we should use insulin. We should literally be saying, this is my normal nutritional practices. And if I place a little insulin with it at that time, it's really just doing what my pancreas normally does, but potentially doing it better, as it were. 
Can I reframe this question quickly, Victor, for people listening? Um, So the way people have asked this in a sense is, okay, hypothetically speaking, I'm consuming 600 grams of carbohydrate per day. Um, And it requires me 30 units of insulin to keep my fasted and postprandial blood glucose in the range that I desire. Now, over time, I notice that moves to 35, 40, 45, let's say. At what point of that insulin does creeping up to support the same amount of food, do you say that that is creeping into the realms of potential hyperinsulinemia and we need to address it? Well, so, so I guess that kind of harks back to what I was saying before. If you are in parallel to that behavior, also deploying strategies, nutritional strategies, supplementation strategies, pharmacological strategies that are all intended to uh, improve insulin sensitivity, and you have all these other tools on the table, And despite having those tools on the table, you see creep. That's the margin because you have to understand Mm. that you you, you have tools on the table that are all designed to offset this and it's still creeping away on you. I would say the moment it does that, it's problematic. Now, if you don't have those tools on the table, if you don't have those strategies, yeah, you could make an argument that there's room for some creep. So you introduce this and you introduce this and you introduce this and you bring it under control for a while, but then it starts creeping on. I would say that's the line crossed right there. Great. And you said you wanted to quickly say something about Lantus and then um, Cal and and Christian, I'll I'll let you give your piece on this. I I completely agree with the the premise that, you know, there are guys out there using what what I consider to be just unrealistic levels of Lantus insulin and, 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 and other long acting analogs. But, it's it's a little bit like so when people say well how dangerous is insulin really i mean i've written about this on my post the reality is is there are some studies on people that have attempted to use insulin deliberately for self-harm in other words they've tried to kill themselves with insulin and people have taken you know 900 units of lantus and survived so i'm not for a moment suggesting that you can't do yourself damage and you can't do yourself some harm but the idea that you know, in the course of a normal day, let's say you were to take 30 units of Lantus, if you didn't eat anything for the rest of the day, you're not going to die. You know, that's just not possible. It's when you start using 100, 150 units of insulin that you have to have that carbohydrate intake to support that use that the risk profile just, it takes off on you. So again, if someone said to me, how dangerous is five units of a rapid acting insulin? Unless you took the unless you took the, the cap off the needle and poked yourself in the eye, I, I'm not sure by what mechanism you could come unstuck with that dose. Now, make it 150 units a day, and the old adage, the dose is the poison, comes into play. Yeah, I actually saw somewhere, I believe it might have been Colette Nelson, who's type one, right? She talks about insulin. She said something in the in and then I'm sure everyone's individual glycogen stores and all that would play into it but something along the lines of a thousand i use of long-acting insulin to if you're doing if you're doing nothing like no eating and you're just sitting there waiting to die <laughs> that's that's the ld50 so 50 percent of people that took a thousand units and did nothing would die yeah we've got so, about 10 minutes left here uh cal and christian if you want to just sort of close it off with your opinions on on this part here and then we'll um we can close it off i meet myself can you hear me now yes i was making some food um so this is like when it comes to 
exogenous insulin use, like if I'm going to apply that, I would only apply that in a scenario where I feel as though I've exceeded their ability to partition the level of food they're eating to progress themselves. So I, I wouldn't necessarily start it at the start of a phase. I would build, yeah. integrate it as I feel it was needed once we've monitored those markers. And once I get to a point where I partition nutrition in and calories in a way where like I can't get this under control now just by using what we have available to us in you. Like I'm going to use certain tools and cr just trickle them in a little bit to take control of that again. Um, it's not something I, I've ever used where I've said, oh, I'm going to use, you know, 50 IUs of Lantis a day on day one of this phase and then we're going to build the diet into that and see how much we can eat. It's more so, right, where, where is your food? Where are, your, where are your blood glucose markers? Where are these markers that we're tracking on a week-to-week -week basis? And when are we going to start losing the ability to control them in an optimal manner? And then if we have, then this is a tool we could use to extend this phase and extend the productivity of this phase. Yeah, I agree there with Carl is that, you know, start, start with food. Uh, start with the, the most anabolic tool and, and when you can't control something using the variables you put in place then maybe it is a last resort that, to use but like client example someone recent sent me his last dosages and was using you know s slow acting and fast acting and we just started from a blank canvas instead just using food his blood glucose has never been over four on a fasted period. Why do you need insulin? Like you don't. So use it when you've exhausted all of our avenues. In my opinion. Cool. Can I can I just ask you a question on that, Christian? If I can. Yeah. So so the the premise I was making before is I'm I'm sure you would agree that you know bodybuilding is not necessarily the the, the most health first industry there is the sport there is there's a lot of things we do that, that you can question not the least of which is just the sheer volume of food we eat yes right and so so the counter argument to that would be if you're smashing away 500 600 700 calories a day you know, over decades of use just that is placing a strain on the pancreas and the answer the argument then is well using insulin then provides relief to the pancreas and allows you to still pursue that behavior. Yeah, yeah, I know. That's a good way to look at it that you wouldn't normally think. Um, but like you say, this is bodybuilding, isn't it? And okay. you're gonna have to eat at some point. Um, but I like that counter argument. Okay, guys, we've got five minutes 40 before Zoom gives us the lights out. Um, I know, um, just to close this off, uh, Scott, Victor uh, disagreed with some of the stuff that you said there on Lantus and, and maybe nutrient timing and, and things like this. Is there anything that you wanted to, to come back with there? Actually, I thought we were pretty much on the same page. To, yeah. yeah, for the most part. Uh, the thing I will say about, about Lantus or you know, the LD50 for insulin is that actually I do know of a, a good friend of a very good friend of mine um, who died I mean, he literally was found in his kitchen with the uh insulin and the needle there um ironically enough like it was there it was pretty the the, the evidence was circumstantial it's really suggested something was there and it's this not necessarily that you would have died from the hypoglycemia brought on 
but simply the stress perhaps if someone's prone to have a heart attack if anyone here is gone i'm sure probably most of them have I've, I've had this happen just without any insulin involved if you get hypoglycemic you get a tremendous yeah adrenaline coming yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah yeah um i mean skip hill has told the story i think on his podcast where he um was he this one lived in colorado and he had driven his motorcycle to the gym and he was driving back and he started to get hypo and um he made it to a uh 7-eleven or a convenience store somewhere and he literally just walked in and started eating all the carbs he could find like right there in the hall right there in the aisleway of the, the store so there are situations where it can just put you in a life-threatening situation because you're you're going to go unconscious or you just you know don't have normal control of your body so i just i like to throw that out because i just hate to you know, I hate to see anyone, um, you know, misunderstand that information, factually, factually correct information and think, well, that make, means I can just, you know, I, I could do something silly. And I've, I've heard of people actually like mixing up IUs, like sometimes it's a bizarre thing. There are people like a lot of these the, the drugs are tremendously um, complicated in the actions they can have. And, and you have to have at least some basic understanding, um, hopefully much more than that. And I've heard of people like taking a, like a regular syringe, you know, and filling it full, thinking they're doing 30 IUs when they're doing three mils or something like that, or think they're doing, um, yeah, like mixing up units in some bizarre way. It's like, how could you possibly have done that? But they inject that. I, I know um, a fair few people that would do that accidentally. Yeah. You know, or people mix up, you know, growth hormone and insulin they haven't labeled things properly, you know, and they, they preloaded syringes. There's all sorts of mishaps that can happen. So just want to be extra careful with this one, I think. I've never actually seen a vial of insulin in the UK. I'm not even sure it's something that's done. I think it all comes in pens. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. There was actually a, a study published just this year, Scott, where a nurse inadvertently administered uh, a uh, sorry, uh, 10 cc's of insulin. <laughs> to a patient 2500 units in one in one shot of a long-acting insulin I mean, let, got, me know where she, let me know where she works yes <laughs> i think i think i think it was a u.s uh, u.s practitioner but uh, i mean obviously they uh the, the the pharmacy you know was aware of the problem immediately and they and they put the guy on a like a a a, 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 a strip and, and he survives something but yeah it's a very valid point one of the recommendations to make to people is it's pens are so readily available today and and it's almost impossible unless you're a freaking moron to you know like with the, you turn the dial to five and that's five units you know mm -hmm. you don't need to draw anything up you don't need to mix products it's not a protein hormone you mix with you know stat water or anything like that it's literally you take the pen up they take the cap off the pen you turn the pen to five that's five units you know and so I, although I completely agree with things do and can go wrong very clearly there's as evidenced by that case study but it's you know there there are ways to in my opinion to you know put preventative measures in place mm -hmm. yes okay guys that is where we ended our very first opd roundtable huge thank you to dr scott stevenson christian chapman cal raystrick and victor black for joining us thank you for everybody that voted to have those guys on and thank you for everybody that voted for the topic that we discussed i had a lot of fun on this one. I really enjoyed just sitting back and listening to everybody um, debate and discuss um, the topic at hand. Me and Austin have agreed that we're definitely going to do these every couple of months or so. So keep your eyes out on Instagram for the next poll that we run and hopefully we can get some new guests on with a new topic pretty soon. 
thanks for listening guys please check out the sponsors below please do share this to your instagram um stories if you've made it this far and tag us in it tag all the rest of the guys in it all of the guys that are on their social media links are going to be below wherever you're listening slash viewing this on so please do check them guys out and send them some support and love for coming on the podcast thanks for listening guys see you next week